The first reading is continuing the story in Revelation, chapter 15, beginning at verse 5. After this, I looked, and in heaven, the temple, that is the tabernacle of the testimony, was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes round their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives for ever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and the ugly and painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned to blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged. For they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Continuing the reading at Revelation 16, verses 8 to 21. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was given power to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. Men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. But they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, 
and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are spirits of demons performing miraculous signs and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the Great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones of about a hundred pound each fell upon men and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. Chapter 16 of Revelation. Those seven last plagues. They all make for pretty grim reading. It's chapters like this one that make many people shy away from the book of Revelation. So I'd really rather not engage with that. I'd rather read something more comforting or comfortable. And other people read this chapter and ask with some justification, what has any of this got to do with a God of love? Has John simply lost the plot here? He seemingly rubs his hands with glee at the prospect of the impending catastrophic judgment of God on a godless world. And the plagues are truly awful. People suffer from ugly and painful ulcers. Every sea creature dies as the sea turns to blood. All the freshwater sources also turn to blood. The temperature of the sun is turned up so that it scorches all the inhabitants of the world with its heat. And then the kingdom of those who oppose God is plunged into darkness while men gnaw their tongues in agony and curse God because of all their sufferings. The armies of the world are summoned to Armageddon for what looks like the final showdown in the ancient conflict between good and evil. But before the battle takes place, there is a colossal earthquake. Every island disappears. Every mountain collapses. There is a massive hailstone with each individual hailstone weighing 100 pounds, which is a bit scary when you think that Horsham holds the record for the heaviest hailstone ever to fall in the UK, and that was a paltry 6.7 ounces. (laughs) Revelation has... Three sets of seven disasters that befall the world. Seven seals are broken, seven trumpets are blown, but the worst of all is the series of seven bowls. 
which represent the final outpouring of God's wrath on the world. And there's no holding back. It seems to be complete catastrophe. Whereas the sounding of trumpets brings disaster on a third of the earth, when the bowls are poured out, the destruction is universal and complete. And whereas with both the seals and trumpets, there's a bit of a delay between the sixth and the seventh event, which gives you a bit of breathing space. When the bowls are poured out, it's one after the other, seven times. There's no let up. It is a totally unrelenting series of disasters unleashed by God on an unrepentant world. If the intention of these judgments is to turn people to God in repentance, if pain is God's megaphone, as C.S. Lewis put it, then the plagues don't work. Because people just respond to their afflictions by cursing God. And so the conflict between God and the world escalates to catastrophic proportions. As he ups the ante and they just turn further and further away from him. It's a chapter of complete and utter polarisation. Because by this time, in the narrative of Revelation, the church, God's people, that's us, we've been whisked away to safety. Either very early in the book, at the end of start of chapter 4, or more likely in the account of the first harvest of the earth, described at the end of chapter 14. But either way, there is nobody and nothing to hold back the final outpouring of God's anger against a world which, in John's opinion, richly deserves everything it gets. Lord God Almighty, your judgments are just and true, he declares, and finds poetic justice in the way which all the water in the world is turned to blood. It's entirely appropriate that those who spilt the blood of God's saints should be given blood to drink. Just what they deserve. God is entirely justified in treating them this way. The punishment fits the crime. In Horsham, we are all civilised, gentle peace-loving people. And we may feel all this is a little bit over the top. But then in 21st century Horsham, we do live very sheltered lives. If we had experienced firsthand the treatment that others dish out in the depths of human depravity, we might perhaps not feel quite so charitable. If we lived in a society where brutality and cruelty were the norm as is the case in many parts of the world, and certainly in the ancient world, perhaps we might be ready to embrace the Revelation vision of chapter 16 a bit more readily, rather than judging it by our own sanitised standards. And yet, because John was living under the tyrannical regime of a despotic megalomaniac, does that justify his depiction of God in what looks like precisely those terms? Isn't he in danger of bringing God down to the level of human baseness? in this chapter. And maybe our our part of the problem with the the unleashing of a whole series of global disasters that we see in John's portrait of God's judgment is that we understand too well how the world works. When an earthquake rocks Italy, we know about seismic shifts in the tectonic plates beneath the Earth's crust. We understand what's going on. We don't decide, oh, God's got it in for Italy at the moment. We don't attribute these events to the actions of a judgment of a vengeful God. So as we, as we read what John says, we think, I can't quite go there. Do we make allowances for John because he lacked our scientific level of understanding? And so he used images of natural disaster to express the judgment of God in a way that we can't accept because we know that's not how the world works. Well, maybe. But... 
If it's only the sovereign grace of God that stops the world from falling into chaotic disintegration. And in the judgment of God, that providential grace is withdrawn, so there's nothing to hold the chaos back. Who knows what the world might look like then? John arguably portrays a world overwhelmed by disaster precisely because God God finally says, enough, have it your way. You don't want me, I will withdraw completely. And you live with the consequences of that decision. There's nothing to hold the chaos back. This is what will happen. How literally should we take this portrayal of events? Well, opinions differ. There are those who have discerned in the sequence of plagues a precise series of events building up to World War III. One after the other, they've mapped out what will happen and when it will happen and how it will happen. Others, scholars like Bruce Metzger, argue that this succession of plagues is not to be understood as an orgy of indiscriminate destruction, but as the working out of God's justice in judgment on those who worship the beast. The repeated emphasis on their lack of repentance indicates their true allegiance insofar as they blaspheme the living God. The author's descriptive details of the plagues are not to be taken literally, but as contributing to the general effect of intense calamity and terror. It may not surprise you that I'm in sympathy with this point of view, not taking any of this too literally, but it is a vivid, dramatic portrayal of God's judgment on a world that's finally turned its back on him, but precisely what form that judgment will take, I'm not sure that Revelation gives us a blow-by-blow account of exactly what it will look like. Will God judge the world? Yes, he will. Will he judge the world precisely in the way described in Revelation 16? I'm not so sure, but I'm willing to be proved wrong when the time comes. But one signal that the language perhaps shouldn't be taken too literally comes in the name Armageddon. That place where the final battle between good and evil happens on the great day of God Almighty. The word Armageddon in Hebrew literally means Mount Megiddo. And Megiddo was the infamous place where good King Josiah, the last good king of Judah, lost his life in a battle against the Egyptians. So the name Megiddo was proverbial for a place of disaster as well as being the site of a number of battles. And John is almost certainly alluding to the apocalyptic prophecy of Zechariah 12.10 here. On that day, the weeping of Jerusalem will be great, like the weeping of Hadad women in the plain of Megiddo. There's the problem. There's the problem with the name Armageddon, Mount Megiddo. Because Megiddo is not a mountain at all. It stands on the edge of a massive plain. So why does John take the plain of Megiddo and call it Mount Megiddo? Why that shift? Well, perhaps because, as Isaiah says in chapter 40, when God comes, every valley will be raised up, every mountain and hill will be made low, the rough ground will become level, the rugged places are plain. When God judges the world, everything is turned upside down, and the plain of Megiddo becomes a mountain. It's all vivid imagery designed to express how God will judge the world and the complete reversal that will take place when that happens. And John's verdict is that the judgment, when it comes, and whatever form it might take, that judgment will be true and just. That at least is what the altar says in chapter 16, verse 7. So presumably 
we're meant to agree with what the altar says. But hold on to that thought for a moment. When the judgment of God comes, whatever form it takes, whether it's like Revelation 16 or something different, we don't know, but when it happens, it will be recognisably true and just. God will be entirely true to his own nature as the ultimate source of truth and justice. Because without God, these things do not exist. There is no higher court to which he will have to give an account of his actions. Nor will there be any grounds on anyone's part to charge him with injustice or say, you haven't acted fairly here, God. In the end, as Abraham says, the judge of all the earth will do what is right. And his verdict and judgment will be universally endorsed as valid and just. So we may recoil a bit from the violent imagery of Revelation 16, as we may do as well from some of the more grotesque portrayals of hell that continue to circulate in some quarters in the church today. What we need to remember and hold on to is that at the end of all things, what God does in judging the world and every individual will be recognisably just and true. The details of that judgment may be hazy, but the principles behind it are crystal clear and unalterable. God will do what is right. And then there are those who point out that in the Song of Moses, in Revelation chapter 15, verses 3 to 4, which we use as our call to worship, which Ray alluded to in the prayers... The king of the ages is again praised for being just and true because he does great and marvellous things. But in chapter 15, when God's righteous acts are revealed, all the nations will come and worship before him. So you read chapter 15 alongside chapter 16 and there is at least a degree of tension, if not of outright contradiction. Because in chapter 15, God is praised for being just and true, and in response to his great and marvellous deeds, all nations will come and worship him. In chapter 16, God is described as being just and true, as he pours out on the judgment on the world, where all nations refuse to acknowledge him and curse him. Which is it going to be? How do you make sense of this? Do the nations come to worship God, all of them, or do all of them curse God as the seven bowls of his anger are poured out upon them? Different interpreters come to different conclusions. Some see the reference to the nations worshipping God in chapter 15, verse 4, as their enforced subjugation to him. They hate him, they reject his sovereignty, but ultimately they still have to bow the knee and acknowledge through gritted teeth that Jesus is Lord. Because every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that. Others see the Song of Moses as a hymn that the church used in praise and worship of God that John slotted into Revelation without necessarily paying too much attention to the context. It's just an expression of praise to God. Everybody's going to come and worship you, Lord, because you're so fantastic. It's an expression of praise rather than detailed predictive prophecy. We sometimes sing songs that say all sorts of things about God. Whether we believe them is another matter. Richard Bork, in his excellent book, The Climax of Prophecy, 
argues that in chapter 15, John interprets the Song of Moses in accordance with the most universalistic strain in Old Testament hope. The expectation that all nations will come to acknowledge the God of Israel and worship him. And he highlights the juxtaposition of the different visions of chapters 15 and 16. 15, 2 to 4 portrays the conversion of the nations. 16 portrays the judgment of the finally unrepentant. We don't take the images seriously if we allow either to qualify the other. The picture of universal judgment doesn't mean that the picture of the universal worship of God isn't to be taken seriously. Nor does the picture of the universal God mean that the picture of universal judgment is not to be taken seriously. Because Revelation deals in images, it doesn't make the kind of statements which have to be logically compatible in order to be valid. Each picture portrays a valid aspect of the truth. One thing is certain, God's kingdom will come. You may not be happy with that, because you still want to know, well in the end, what's it going to be? Other nations going to be saved, or are they going to be judged? It's not our call. That is down to God. He's the one who judges. He's the one who saves. And until we reach that point in time, the outcome for each nation and the whole world hangs in the balance. It could go either way. The potential is there for worshipping God. The potential is there for destruction in the judgment of God. And when the line comes down, every person, every nation will be on one side or the other. There's no middle ground. But we're not at that stage yet. And here's the important bit. Because the gospel, which is the means by which the nations of the world can yet be saved, that has been entrusted to us. And if we read Revelation 16 and think, oh, that's absolutely awful. How, you know, we, we really don't want people to go through that. And we're really bothered by it then rather than sitting around wondering what on earth Revelation is about, we should actually be praying and giving and working towards making sure that people do know the God who created them and who saves them and who will be their judge. If the fate of the world matters to us, the future of the world is not best served by armchair speculation about what might happen at the end. Here and now... The door is still open for the gospel. And in word and in deed and in prayer, we need to stand shoulder to shoulder with those proclaiming the good news of Jesus in places like Brazil and Romania and Chad, Nigeria, Zimbabwe, Ethiopia, Cambodia, North Korea, India, Nepal. Just ten the countless nations of the world. We give. We pray. And if we're called, we go. Because whatever happens when the time finally comes to judge the world, we're not at that moment yet. Here and now, our calling is to embody and proclaim the good news of Jesus, which offers salvation to a world which otherwise is going off the rails. It may be that one day God will pull his church out of the world and leave the world to its fate. But in the meantime, our role, our purpose, the reason we are here is to be light in the darkness. 
to be hope in a world of despair, to be people of grace and forgiveness in the world of anger, love in a world of hatred, and peace in a world of violence. Because we are the body of Christ. That is our calling. Pray. Give. Go. Serve. Witness. You are the light of the world, Jesus says. And before the darkness falls, let your light shine. Let's pray. Lord, you are sovereign over the globe. You are the Lord of history. Your purposes will be fulfilled. They cannot be frustrated. Thank you that at the end, your kingdom of righteousness and justice and life and peace and healing and wholeness will be all in all. Evil, destruction, violence and hatred will be no more. Thank you for that vision. Thank you that the door is still open. There is still the opportunity for people and nations to turn back to you. Lord, may we be people who shine your light. Would you reign in our hearts, govern our minds, and enable us by how we live, what we do, what we say and how we say it, to be people who share the grace of Jesus Christ with those whom we meet. Keep us faithful in prayer. Keep us faithful to you. Lord, if there are people in this church whom you are looking to call to go, may they sense that call in their hearts and know that this is your purpose for them. Fulfill your purpose for them and for us and for your world. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.